I've commented two or three times actually on uh, Psalm 118 or Joel 2, number 118 that we just sang. Uh, that song just for a long time has bothered me. <clears throat> it's uh, Dwight Armstrong clearly misunderstood Joel 2. Uh, he writes this in a in a real upbeat music like this is God's own people running over everybody else is the sense that you get from the way he wrote it. And that's not the context of Joel 2 at all. <clears throat> there it is that uh, Gentile soldiers, perhaps robots, will be running wildly everywhere and killing and destroying and he warns God's people in Zion to cry and pray and fast and so on because what's coming is so horrible and so awful and to uh, it, it's a dirge it's a it's a sad area of of terrible destruction and and he writes it like it's a Mary had a little lamb kind of a beat to it I I I don't know. I I don't know whether we ought to even sing that one or not because it's such a a misrepresentation of of the context of Joel too. Uh, and I I thought years ago that this sounded like robots, and now in today with all the artificial intelligence that they are developing, they already have drones and even human sort of looking robots that are quite capable of going into war and if they're capable of serving hamburgers at McDonald's which they're starting to do uh, they're certainly capable of killing people and you know it's kind of interesting that I've read quite a few articles about AI recently and uh, the robots have very uh, sophisticated computers and they're beginning to hate people can you imagine hating people now they are programmed to be a certain way and then they see people and people don't do good a lot of times and even a robot can see that people aren't what they ought to be <laughs> and will start turning on us I'm sure uh, because they're already some scientists are already saying that sooner or later they're going to turn on us, and some have already even verbalized that they don't care for people. Well, this thing is getting very, very close and very, very scary uh, with what's happening, and that kind of leads me into where I was going today. Uh, we are certainly in a sick and dying world. There's no doubt of that anymore. Disease is running rampant. They figure one-third of our population will have cancer, one-third will have heart disease, and one-third will have diabetes. Uh, that's 100% of the population. Of course, they're not saying that some people will have two or three of those. Not everybody will have even one of them, but it's getting to the point a lot of people have all three. And... And other diseases not even mentioned among the big three. And then we have war and rumor of war and threats all over. And volcanoes and earthquakes are increasing and killing more people. 
So all these scriptures about the end time are coming very, very close to fulfillment. And we're in a world that it would be easy to be discouraged in when we look at everything around us. And the world around us is not what we want it to be. And we are not what we want us to be. And therefore, it can get frustrating. So, we need some kind of hope in a sick and dying world. When everything around you is bad, you need hope. And it's one of the big three. Faith, hope, and love, God said, uh, are the main three things. And the apostles in the early New Testament church saw terrible things happening in terms of persecution and martyrdom. Uh, Even Paul, who became an evangelist and then an apostle, uh, was killing Christians and, and cheering others on who were killing Christians. And they thought that these end time things were upon them. And then a great falling away had started before they were killed. And everything that had been built was being destroyed before their very eyes. So, they had plenty of reason to be frustrated, discouraged, wondering what's going on. This is the church that Christ built, and here we're being destroyed, which they were. Government was destroying them, religion was destroying them. And we look at today, a a nation of Israel, Ephraim, and we are being destroyed by the Gentiles around us, as prophesied, and we're inviting them in. We're in a situation right now where that which was given to us, we are giving away and throwing away. Now, think of times when you've really cared maybe about somebody and you wanted to do something really, really special for them, So you made or bought or whatever something you thought that they would really like to have and would deeply appreciate, and you gave it to them with a lot of love and hope and in your heart, and you find out not too long afterward that they literally despised what you had given them and had thrown it away or given it away or forgot where it came from. Now, I did that with my wife. Well, probably more than once, but one I remember in particular, where she had bought me something, and it had been like 20 years ago, and had been sitting back drawing dust. And one day I, I asked her, where did those actually come from? Oh my, oh my. I had forgotten that she had given them to me. Now, when, when I got my comeuppance, I did remember. But it was way too late, by about 15 seconds. That, it crushed her. It hurt her feelings really badly that she had given me something that I had forgotten about. Now, she's given me many things, and most of them I remembered and cherished, for that matter. But in that one particular case, it just went blank. And 
and then something really heavy came on the screen. It wasn't blank anymore. I remember my first real hunting rifle, a new one that I bought when I was in my early 20s. And I used that on many, many hunts in different states and different countries. And it, and it was important to me. There was a lot of emotion and memories tied up in that. And I had another one that was not quite as old, but had meaning to me as well. So I gave them to my sons, thinking they'll probably cherish these and keep them forever since they came from Dad, and they had so many memories tied in with them. And they turned around and sold them. Not the next day, but wasn't very long. And that just crushed me. I later told them years later, I says, why didn't you just, you needed the money, why didn't you just sell them back to me? I loved them, I appreciated them, and I thought you would. And it made them feel bad, and I didn't care when I told them that. But I'm leading up to this point. Look at this land that God gave us in this nation. The most blessed nation on the face of the earth in terms of water and natural resources and everything that we could need, God gave us right here. And we are, our leaders, our Congress, giving it away as fast as we can and inviting the whole Gentile world to come in from Canada, from Mexico, from everywhere all over the earth. The Muslims are bitter enemies and giving it to them giving your tax dollars to them, giving them Social Security cards and checks and housing and all kinds of... It's happening all over Europe, too. They're just letting them take over, inviting them in, and giving away what God so lovingly gave us so long ago. And when we despised it then, He took it away, took us into captivity gave it back to us, took us into captivity again by ship overseas, and then we migrated back into northwestern Europe, and finally he allowed us back over here. And 430 years later, we're in the process of giving it all away as fast as we possibly can. Now, how does that make God feel? Three times I've given you this. He's not happy with us at all. And we're not happy with our so-called leaders who are doing this. Because you and I have learned to appreciate that this is actually the part of the promised land, the major part of it. it was totally the original, then it was expanded. And most of the tribes of Israel are still in northwestern Europe and where they've scattered into Australia or wherever. But they'll be brought back here in the millennium. This is the spot, this nation, this continent. Of course, the continents may merge, but still Israel will be separated. Well, we spiritually despised a lot of what God had given us too and took it for granted and were lackadaisical about it. And so God has taken that away as well. So we find ourselves in the same position the apostles were when they wrote the New Testament. Everything being taken away that was given. 
to the church. Could be discouraging. I don't see anybody laughing and giggling, you know, when you start talking like this. It's, it's not a happy situation. Let's go to the book of 1 Peter. The overall theme, there are other themes running through it, but the overall biggest theme of the book of Peter, first book of Peter, is hope. And actually all that Peter wrote had uh, the thread of hope all through it. It's interesting that uh, James, Peter, and John focused on the three big things that Paul mentioned in 1 Corinthians 13, faith, hope, and love. James wrote about faith, Peter wrote about hope, and we just concluded a series about love where the Apostle John discussed it in detail on what the true love of God is. So we're kind of backing up from that one to the books just before it in Peter, because a message of hope in a dying world is very important. So let's see what he had to say about it and about the conditions that he and the people he wrote to were living in and what we might derive from it for ourselves. He says, Peter, an apostle, and I'll use Emmanuel the Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, scattered all over. Now, strangers, what do you mean strangers? They were, many of them, living in the countries that they had grown up in. And you remember Acts 2, there were 12 or 13, I think it was 13 different uh, places named there, where people were visiting Jerusalem from, perhaps just for the uh, holy days. Well, if they'd grown up there, they weren't strangers there, were they? No, they were citizens. They belonged there. That's where they lived, where they were born. How did they then become strangers? Well, they had come to see God's truth, and that made them strange to everybody around them. They became strangers. They hadn't been before, but they became that. So, Peter is addressing it from that standpoint. You who have become strangers in your own land. We became strangers to our relatives, to our friends, to our business associates, whoever, when we began to obey God. Strangers to our own mates in some cases. And they would persecute us and put us down for trying to do what we knew we ought to be doing. So he's writing to these strangers who were scattered. And if you look it up in the Greek, uh, it's not so much scattered as it is persecuted and chased. They were, there were people in those countries where they lived who were trying to kill Christians. Get rid of them. And that is the battle cry today in America is get rid of Christians. Because most of the leaders in Washington are Luciferians and godless people who want Christians destroyed. Now, why it is that some of these so-called Christians and those who are into prophecy can't understand that we're Israel is, is beyond me. It's so simple you got the whole Gentile world out there, and what do they want to do? Kill anybody who's white. 
And where did Christianity spring from? White people. Where did the Bible get set around the world from? White people. Can't they read the Scriptures and understand that ancient Israel was white people and all of the other nations wanted to kill them and nothing has changed? And now those Gentile nations don't recognize the difference between a true Christian and a fake Christian. All they see is the name of Christ and they want it gone. And it's mainly from white people. Or people who've been converted to so-called Christendom in Gentile countries, and they are under intense persecution as well. Satan wants the name of Christ destroyed from the earth. It's that simple. And it is Israel that has had it and has promoted it. So, we have people in the church who recognize that Babylon, or the head of Babylon today, is America. We don't look like Israelites anymore. We look like Gentiles, as he says in Ezekiel 16. So we have people in the church who are saying, I've got to get out of America because that's Babylon. And they go to other countries where the people are black or yellow or brown, and they stand out like a neon light for all those people who hate Israelites. <laughs> they think they're going to be better off in a foreign Gentile land when the Gentiles who hate us will kill us in their nation and will come here to kill us as well. It just doesn't make any sense at all. So, these people were facing the same thing that's coming down the pike at us right now. They had converted to the truth, and now they were strangers in their own land. We're called pilgrims and ambassadors in other places. Well, how am I an ambassador? I'm in the land that I was born in. I grew up here. I'm not an ambassador as an American to Americans. The only way I'm an ambassador is an ambassador for the kingdom of God for Americans and anybody else in the world. So our status changed, didn't it? We're no longer citizens of America in one sense. We're citizens of the kingdom of God, which is a higher level by far than an American citizen. Now, I'm not going to throw away my citizenship and repudiate America because it's a land that I love, and if I could, I'd save it, as it says in Jeremiah, but I can't. And God says, don't even pray for it. Now, that's where we are today. That's where these people were, persecuted and killed. Strangers being chased. So he wrote them and addressed them that way. Elect. Now, they weren't strangers to Peter. They weren't strangers to God. He calls them the elect. So he's writing to church people who were scattered in the countries that they had grown up in and were no longer acceptable citizens of those countries. Just as you and I are not acceptable to the Department of Homeland Security anymore or the CIA, or the FBI. 
or anybody else. They want us dead. And they're going to do everything within their means to kill us, just like these people were. But Peter said, you're the elect. Now, you may be cowering in fear from those who want your heads, but now recognize I'm writing to the elect of God. Fear of man here, acceptance of God here. That's where we are today. That's where we are. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. God, ahead of time, chose whom He would call, how He would work with them, and how would He, he would make them the elect. Uh, what, what is an elected person? Someone who's approved of in our country or in our politics by a majority vote. Well, in this particular case, God's the majority. <laughs> he, he is the majority of, well, let's say two. Out of the seven billion that are here, there's only, two, there's only two opinions that count, and they're the same. They're one. So if God has called you to be elect, then what difference does it make about the world, our nation around us to whom we're strangers, and the rest of the world who wants us all dead? Of scripture comes to mind. If God be for us, who can be against us? That's one to live by. That's one to remember. Because you will have enemies. We do have enemies. Uh, some, some of them next door, and some of them are further removed, and some of them in Washington, and some of them in capitals of the world, around the world. And Satan, of course, who is our biggest enemy. So he says, I know you're scattered and persecuted, but you're the elect of God according to His foreknowledge. Nobody can come except the Spirit of the Father draw Him. John 6, 44. So you can't have a true knowledge and an understanding of the truth unless it comes from God. Because He wrote the Bible in code so that it could not be understood by anyone without the opening of their mind by the Spirit of God. That's why Baptists and Methodists and Catholics and Mormons can't understand the Bible. They don't have the Spirit of God. And therefore, it's a closed book to them. They can't grasp the meaning of it whatsoever. So, we're elected of God by His pre-knowledge through the setting aside or sanctification of the Spirit. Sanctification is kind of a religious, intellectual word, but set aside is what it means. That you looked into this bowl of fruit, and you picked some out, and you set them aside for special use. So out of all this humanity out here, God has picked out and set aside some for a special use. And you were included among those. Now get that. Because if you have been, with the foreknowledge of God, picked out and set aside for a special use, then you have to see yourself in a special light. That doesn't mean you're better than anybody else. Don't get me wrong. But Peter is pointing that out right away. 
He says, you are special. You have been a set aside for a purpose. Now that puts pressure on you to fulfill the purpose for which God has set you aside. You're not out here in the bushel basket anymore. You're set over here for a special use. And we need to get that because it affects our conduct. It affects our thinking. We don't need to look upon ourselves as special as a human being because in that sense we're not. But we have a special purpose, a special reason for being called. For God's purposes... You and I are no better than a lot of the people right around us, by any means. In fact, some of them are a lot better as people than we are. That's just a fact. He didn't call the mighty and the noble. He called the weak and the base. Sorry, we're not as good as a lot of people around us in this world. But we're called for a special use and a special purpose, and we need to live up to that special calling that God has given. So he's encouraging them here. You're called and set aside of the Spirit of God for the purpose of obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Christ Emmanuel. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Now they were not living in peace. They were living in harassment and threat of death. But he says, you've been called to obedience to Christ by being set aside for that and by the sprinkling of His blood. What does the sprinkling of His blood do? It forgives the sin that so easily besets us and the sin that we have lived and it gives us cleanliness and holiness before God that we would not otherwise have and did not have. So he's saying, you're set aside for special, and not only that, you've been washed. You take the apples out of the barrel, you wash them, and then you set them aside for your special use, whether that's a pie or strudel or whatever it might be. You have a purpose in mind when you pull them out, clean clean them, and set them over here for use. That's what's been done with us. So he was encouraging people who were under great adversity. And you and I are under adversity, and it's going to get a whole lot worse. Okay? It's going to get a whole lot worse. So we need this. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Christ Emmanuel, which according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Christ Emmanuel from the dead. So he says, Give thanks to God, bless Him, for what He has done for us, because He has abundant mercy. Now that's a quote from the Old Testament. You go to the Psalms and there's a whole chapter in there that talks about how His mercy uh, is forever. It never fails. So he's given us that, and it is to be a lively hope. You know, we can sometimes have hope against hope. We can look at conditions, and we would, boy, I wish this, or I hope for that, 
But when I look at everything, it ain't much of a hope. Have you ever felt that way? And you were sort of hoping against hope? Now, Peter says we don't want that. We want a lively hope. Now, what does lively mean to you? I saw some little goats this morning when I was sitting out in the chair. And they're just about that tall. And have just learned how to jump and hop and jump up on a log and off again. And they just race around lively. You can't, you can hardly keep up with them. Because they're here, they're there, they're everywhere. Go, go, go. They're lively. There's a hen out here with 16 baby chicks. I've mentioned it. And now they don't look like, they're not round like they just came out of an egg. They're two or three weeks old now, and they're beginning to grow tail feathers, and they're beginning to look like miniature chickens. But they're still so lively that it's hard to count them. I have counted them dozens of times, and I'll come up with anywhere from 13 to 17, because they, they race back and forth, one ahead of the other, the next one up, and three more here, and they're just all over the place. And it's like trying to count to count ants after you step in the middle of the nest. They're just everywhere. It's lively. It's active. It's busy. Oh, that's what he's trying to describe here. A lively hope. One that's alive. That has life. That can, can get around. That's exciting, if you will. Now, I don't want to get up and run around and jump anymore like the baby goat, but I sure do enjoy watching them because I enjoy the impact of the liveliness that is there. It's just fun to watch. Now, God wants us to be lively as His children. And, yeah, we're old. We can't run and jump like that anymore. But can we have a very active, real hope? That's what he's trying to get across to us. By the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Now that was exciting. Those who were there that morning before sunup, it was still dark. And the angel had rolled the rock back, opened this grave, and he had come alive, had gotten up, folded up his garment, grave garments that he had on, and came out of there. He had far more self-control than I think you and I would have had. Had I found myself in that tomb and had just waked up, I don't think folding my garments would have had anything, would have crossed my mind. I think I would have been out of my mind to get out of there <laughs> as fast as I could. But he thought things through. And when he came out, they didn't even want to believe he was alive. Oh, he's still dead. <laughs> we, we don't have really any hope. A hope against hope that he would come back to life. He told us he would, but, you know, that's kind of far-fetched. And it was hard for them to grasp that he was actually alive. And then we had the episode with Doubting Thomas. He says, here, you want to see the scars where they drove the nails through? When I was resurrected, I retained my scars. 
Didn't have to. But he retained it on purpose because he knew doubting Thomas ahead of time. Is that really you? Well, 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 look. What do you think? It's like when Peter was in prison and they had this prayer meeting where everybody got together and they were praying and praying that, oh, please take care of Peter and let him out of prison. And Peter got let out of prison and he comes and knocks on the door and the girl comes to the door and says, uh, leave us alone. Uh, we're praying for Peter. He's in prison. I'm Peter. Hey, hello. How much faith and hope did they really have? I don't know. But when their prayer was answered, it was almost beyond belief. You know, that's going to be the way it is with us. We've had how many false starts since back in the early 70s where we thought this and we thought this and we thought this and hoped and then nothing happened and we hoped and nothing happened. And you get to the point where you're a little gun-shy and you kind of, well, I hope, but I'm, uh, yeah, I do. Yes, we need a lively hope. Now, it's not talking about necessarily looking for what's coming, but for the consummation of it, for the finish, is where the hope is to be. And, of course, that's what we've been hoping for all these years, that this thing would be over. But it's not quite over yet. It's very, very close, but it's not over yet. And it's easy to get discouraged by what we see around us. So, that lively hope is in His resurrection to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fades not away, reserved in heaven for you. Now, you could tie this in with Revelation 21 where it says that we'll have no more fear, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more death, no more tears, and so on. Uh, same with 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul talks about being incorruptible and everlasting and all those things, which Peter clearly understood and was discussing himself. So he says, you got a hope of an incorruptible inheritance, undefiled, will not fade, now, notice the word there, reserved in heaven for you. This isn't just a general idea of salvation. There's a reservation with your name on it. See, it's set up here that you are the elect, called ahead of time by God, and set aside for what? Eternal life. Now, you might have set these apples aside to build a pie. God set us aside to build a kingdom, to build a family. And He included you and me in it is the reason we're here talking about this. They're not doing that tomorrow morning in the churches across the land. You know, they've basically given up on the resurrection. The Protestants don't look to the resurrection, do they? How much did you get taught about the resurrection in the Mormon or the Catholic or the Methodist or the Baptist church? Very, very little. They might mention it on Sunday morning on Easter or whatever, because since it's in the book, they kind of understand that there's something about a resurrection, 
But that's not what they teach and live by, is it? What do they teach and live by? A rapture so that all of us who are still here will go up before all this trouble hits and we'll go to heaven. Now, where is everybody that died before the rapture? They're either in heaven or hell. So where's the resurrection? You die, you go to heaven, or you go to hell. So they preach to you, every Sunday you're going to hell, and then every one of you that dies, they say you went to heaven. Some kind of disparity there. But that's basically what they teach. So there's no room for a resurrection in their theology. It's, they just bypass it. If you were to pin them down and say, is, is the resurrection in the... Oh, yeah, but Aunt Gertrude went to heaven. She's not waiting for the resurrection. She's in heaven. I just went to and preached a funeral a few months ago in front of a bunch of Mormons. And they thought that this guy had gone to heaven. Another Mormon died, and they said, well, he's out there with his bees buzzing around. He's been reincarnated as a bee. Well, I hope I don't step on him. No, they don't believe in the resurrection. It's, it's, a, it's an afterthought, if you will. It's not what they go by. But we do. Resurrection is front and center to our teaching and our belief. And that's where Peter goes when he writes an epistle here. Reserved for you. Your name's on it. Uh, you know, if your name is written in the book of life, when God calls you and sets you aside and sanctifies you, He writes your name in the book of life. And it won't be taken out of there unless you request it be done. Now, you're not going to say, you know, take my name out of the book of life. We request it be taken out by living an ungodly life. And that is our request. We put it in jeopardy ourselves, in other words. Now, it's reserved there for you. Now, here's some encouragement in the next verse. Who are kept by the power of God through faith to salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Do you realize that you cannot work salvation in yourself? You can do all the good works that are possible, do all the service of the brethren that are possible, but you can't earn salvation. You can't. One sin equals death. The penalty of sin is death. So you could do, spend your whole life doing good works, and if you had one unforgiven sin, you've got to die for it. That's the wages of sin. So we show God, by our good works, the faith we have in His willingness, willingness to give us the gift of salvation. We want to please Him in every way in how we live so that He will say, Wow, that one I want in my kingdom. I'm going to give that one salvation. It's a gift of God. 
And He works salvation in us. Paul put it pretty much that way. That He works salvation in us. This verse won't come to mind. But we're kept here by the power of God through faith to salvation. How? We believe in Him. We have faith and trust. And we ask Him to do what? Fill us with His Spirit so we can walk in the Spirit, not in the flesh. Because naturally and normally, we'll walk in the flesh. That's just the way we're made. So it takes His Spirit acting through our mind to keep us on the path to salvation and for Him to work His salvation in us. So we call on Him daily, don't we? To give us of His Spirit, of His faith, His hope, His love, and a spirit of obedience and service to Him and to others so that we would be a benefit in His kingdom? Why, why would He want us in His kingdom if there was no benefit in us being there? Why does a company want an employee if there's no benefit in that employee being there? They, they stay in the snack room all day. They don't work. They don't do anything. They just want a paycheck. But there's no benefit to the company. Out the door. Now, God needs to see a benefit in having you and me in His kingdom. That's why He says, build up treasure in heaven so that there's the things that you have done and the way you've lived here created a value in heaven. That's what treasure gold, silver, whatever you consider a treasure. Value. That's what treasure is, is value. So God says, build up value in the kingdom, in, the hev in heaven. So that when I look at you, and I look at your record, I see value. There's, there's someone that I want here because there's benefit, there's value to me. There's value to the people who will live in the kingdom of God in the millennium. <coughs> Here's someone who serves and gives and helps and is of a ready mind. And that has value to me because I've got all these people out here who have needs. So we're to be building up that value and He has to work through us in order for that to happen. Because we cannot save ourselves and we cannot work salvation in ourselves. We can do those things which please God and will cause Him to have the emotion and the judgment of, I want that one. So we're kept by the power of God's Spirit through faith. And it will be revealed in the last time. Now, Peter thought that the last times were upon them. The last times were soon to be upon him and upon the other apostles because they were going to be killed in various and awful ways even as the leadership here at the end is also going to be killed in an awful way. So that time is almost upon us. Verse 6, Wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through many temptations. So there's a dichotomy here. We are to have this lively hope and desire and goal 
of pursuing the kingdom of God and having an inheritance incorruptible, and yet at the same time we're facing all kinds of troubles and problems and difficulties here on this earth. The particular people he wrote to here, again, were being chased and persecuted and they were, people were trying to kill them, just as they are increasingly right here even in our own nation. And Satan's going to exacerbate that when he's cast down. And if we don't flee to Zion in a hurry, we're going to be killed right there. So that's the, his final try. So we greatly rejoice. We're happy at what's ahead of us that God is working in us. And yet we're still having to deal with heaviness. Verse 7, that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold. Gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found to praise and honor and glorying at the appearance of Emmanuel the Christ. Do we think of our trials as more precious than gold? I doubt that is a natural emotion to us. When we have trials, troubles, tribulations, difficulties, problems of any kind, we don't tend to think of that as, wow, this is wonderful, like somebody giving me a pound of pure gold. We don't look at it that way, do we? Here's old George over here without a leg and the other one half cut off. Looks like a chicken bone. Is it natural for him to think, boy, what a one... This is like somebody giving me a pound of gold that I'm in this condition. And others of you here. I just happened to pick on him. But, you know, others have diabetes and heart troubles and old age and bad attitudes or whatever your trouble is. That's us. <laughs> and he says... Look upon the trial of your faith as being more precious than gold that perishes. Because what does the trial of your faith do? It gives you strength and courage and a goal and a hope that you will have an unperishable inheritance. Now, somebody can give you gold, and what are you going to do with it? Well, you'll either get it stolen or spend it, or bury it in the ground. That's what people do with gold. Gold is the only thing on earth that people spend all kinds of money and effort and hard, hard, hard work to find in the ground, and then they turn around and look and say, somebody's going to want this, and they bury it in the ground. <laughs> that seems strange, doesn't it? But that's what they do or deep in a vault where somebody eventually will steal it because they know where it is and they're after it. You think the bankers don't know where all the gold is? They agitate because you did bury some and it's not in their vault. So, when we have trials, troubles, sicknesses, diseases, close calls, car accidents... Bad attitude, whatever happens to us that is a trial of our faith that would discourage us 
from the kingdom of God. Now, one of those could be fear of the new world order and what's coming. But he tells us in Isaiah 8, don't fear it. Fear me. And in other places as well. So he says, these things will come as a trial of your faith, but pay no attention because you have your eyes focused on an inheritance incorruptible. And anything else down here is corruptible. Gold will go away. You won't have it. Even though it is tried with fire. You know, to smelt gold and get the impurities out of it, they put it through high heat so that the impurities are melted out. And that is all that's left. Now, that's what God is doing with us with our trials. He is putting great heat and pressure on us to get rid of the impurities so that we're pure and clean and holy before Him. So we should rejoice in that we're being purified. Now, I've worked with gold smelting a little bit and not found a lot so far. But when you did see just a little bit, oh, it was so exciting that you'd cooked all this dirt and came out with a little button of pure gold. How exciting that is. Now, God looks at it that way. He sees dirt down here, made from red dirt, us. Totally impure, unclean, deceitful, desperately wicked, works of the flesh, on and on it goes. And then He refines us and gives us trials, troubles, tribulations, difficulties. And sometimes they're almost more than we can stand. And when you're smelting gold... If you get a little too much heat on it, you know what happens to it? It can't stand it. It goes up the chimney to get away and disappears. So we can only stand so much heat and pressure until we fly away, we go away, we quit, we don't endure, whatever. Now God has said, I won't put more on you than you can stand. Now, He will put as much on us as we almost can't stand. And sometimes it seems like we can't stand it. But He's promised us, I won't give you more than you can handle. And you better come to Me and get help in order to handle it because you can't take it on your own. That much heat and pressure requires help from Me. The refiner. And the refiner has to be very careful how he treats that ore to be sure he doesn't put too much heat and pressure and have it go up the chimney. But God is a master refiner. And he knows just how much heat and pressure you can take. You don't, but he does. And he'll only put so much on, and he will put more on than you think you can. There have been tried times I have cried out loudly to God and saying, I just can't handle it. Help me. And made a pretty impassioned plea a few times in life. And things have gotten better. He's helped. I know he helped. Because I was at the end of my rope hanging on to the knot. And I've been there in the last year. Several times. 
barely able to handle it. And when I cried out, God gave me strength, energy, and took part of the pressure away. I'm speaking of the death of my beloved wife. And it's been a hard year, I'll guarantee you that. It's not been easy at all. And there have been times I've just barely been able to handle it. Well, we all have that. I just use that as a personal example. We can handle it. That we might have praise and honor and glory at the appearance of Christ when He comes to change us into spirit. This life is fraught with trouble. That's what Peter's tried to tell them. Look, it doesn't matter how bad it is around you or what's going on, you keep this lively hope. You keep your mind on the goal that is ahead. You don't look around at trouble. And there, again, Peter might have been writing this in remembrance of when the boat was about to sink, he thought. And we're going to sink. We're all dead men. And they wake Christ up. Oh, save us, save us. We're all going to perish. No, no, that was I'm mixing two stories there. The one where Peter was afraid. Yeah, he was still afraid that they were going to sink at that time as well. But Christ had sent them on out, and they were in the waves. And they thought they were going to sink, and here he comes walking across the water. Now, they were in deep trouble there. I mean, normally speaking, they may have sunk. They were in deep trouble with that many waves. They were experienced seamen. They knew what boats and water and wind can do. And even as experienced sailors, they were scared. It was pretty bad that night. Here comes Christ walking up and down the waves. Peter says, oh, you're there. So he jumps off the boat and runs out to me. He was fine as long as he kept his eyes on Christ who has the answers. But the second he looked at the wind and the water, he says, I can't do this. Skloop. And would have drowned right there if Christ hadn't said We can't do it on our own. We've got to look to Him. He wrote this. He didn't bring that particular instance up, but he says, you look around at the trouble you're in, Realize where your help comes from. Verse 8, Whom having not seen, you love. We've heard the story. We've read the story. We've come to believe the story. And we love Him for what He did. Because it's the only hope we have that if our sin be forgiven, we might inherit eternal life because our sin doesn't kill us anymore. It killed Him. How many times have I killed Christ? I can blame it on the Pharisees if I want to. But every time I sin, I'm driving a spike in his hands and feet and sticking a sword into his entrails and letting the blood gush out is what I'm doing. But I believe that his life was worth more than mine by far, and I love him for what he did for me. That my sin could be paid by somebody else, the penalty of it. 
You love him even though you haven't seen him, because you know what he did. In whom, though now you see him not, you haven't seen him and you still don't. Yet believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. I, th- I think it's an unspeakable joy if we come to Passover with the right attitude and we take the symbols of His blood and His body and it's a solemn, serious thing because of the price that He paid and yet at the same time knowing that that wipes the slate clean for us and we will not have to die the penalty for our own sins, there's an unspeakable joy that's there as well. I know Marla and I have a, uh, not a habit, a, what's the word I'm looking for? Something we did every year anyway, uh, a tradition I guess is what I'm saying. After the Passover, we'll come home and put on the Messiah and listen to it all the way through. And the most unspeakable joy and the one piece of music she loved above all music on earth, she loved the Messiah, and there was one piece in there she loved above everything else in it, and that was the trumpet shall sound and the dead will be raised. That's what we're here for. It's unspeakable joy and full of glory. Sorry, I shouldn't go. I shouldn't go there. But to me, it makes the point. It makes the point. Unspeakable and full of glory. Receiving the result of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. It's not the end of our faith in the sense of our faith ending, but the purpose, the result of our faith is salvation. Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come to you. Now he says salvation is by grace, it's by unmerited pardon. And the prophets of old did not fully grasp what this is all about. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all the minor prophets, Daniel. It says right here that they inquired and searched diligently. God gave them the words to speak, to write down... Uh, both to speak audibly to the people around them for their sake and then write them down for people who would live now who would need to understand what's coming on us. And in those prophecies, including Psalms and Proverbs, and even Moses who was a prophet, the first five books, he's called a prophet, the salvation of God is mentioned over and over and over again And a few of them understood it better than others. I think David understood it probably as much or more than anyone. Because the Psalms are full of how he would be forgiven and how he would someday be with Christ again, even though he knew he was dying. He understood the resurrection. 
He hadn't been in it because Acts says that nobody but he who came down has gone back. And even David is still in his grave and he hasn't gone to heaven. I don't know how my Uncle Jesse got into heaven when David ain't made it because Uncle Jesse wasn't anywhere near what David was. <laughs> you know, whatever. But those men didn't understand, didn't grasp. And Herbert Armstrong didn't grasp for a long time after he learned the truth, the real purpose of mankind. He finally understood that we are to become God as God is, as the Scriptures plainly say, and he couldn't see, and neither can any Protestant on earth. You say we're to become God, and they say, that's blasphemy. No, that's what we're here for. Christ going to... I don't marry goats and dogs, do you? Christ won't marry angels. He won't marry created beings. He'll, be, he'll marry that which is born as a God. Like kind. Nobody understands that except he who is revealed, or is revealed to, what the mystery of God truly is. The prophets, holy men of God, who are mentioned in Hebrews 11 that will be in the kingdom of God, didn't understand really the plan of God. And neither do the angels. Do we realize that? The angels that sit before God's throne and going back and forth and who come here to look after us, to take care of us and help manage our lives in God's behalf, don't understand what you and I are here for. Let's read that. The prophets have inquired and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. The prophets wondered, what is this that I'm writing about? They didn't grasp fully that Christ was coming to the earth, would live a perfect life, and die so that they and we might be God someday. They searched and searched. Unto whom it was revealed that, that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported to you, by them that have preached the gospel to you with the Holy Spirit sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. It wasn't understood, it says right here, by the Old Testament men or the angels, and it was given through Peter, James, and John who had been instructed in it by Christ himself. You understand things that Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel did not grasp by any means. Job was one who understood better than most. He says, I'll wait in my grave until my change comes, Job 14, 14. So we understood that there was an afterlife. And Job of the Old Testament was one of the three most righteous men that lived. Noah, Job, Job and Daniel. Mentioned there by Ezekiel, I guess it was. Jeremiah or Ezekiel. 
Though they were there, they could save only themselves. It was Ezekiel. So they didn't grasp it. It wasn't revealed to them. It says right there in so many words, verse 12. But to us, they taught or wrote the things which are now reported to to you. All those things in the Old Testament were written and are being reported to us and were then by Peter in the New Testament ministry. Preach the gospel to you with the Holy Spirit sent down from God or from heaven that the angels themselves desire to look into. They're curious. They come down and they see you and me and they look around and say, I don't quite get it. (laughs) What's happening here? I was told to protect you. I was told to help you. Uh, And there you are, stealing that or committing adultery and I'm sitting here watching you and I'm trying to help you keep from getting shot uh, or you're thinking of killing somebody yourself and I'm having trouble putting this together even though they've been to the throne of God back and forth to here they still don't quite get it now you and I have trouble getting it too it's hard for us to grasp that we as we are sweating, discouraged, lazy, selfish, everything you want to name, it's hard for us to grasp that we'll never ever be that way again. That the downpulls of our nature will go away. I've never experienced weightlessness from sin. Astronauts experience a certain weightlessness from gravity, and they can float. But I've never experienced anti-gravity. Now, I've been buoyant in the Dead Sea or the Salt Lake where I kind of floated, but it's not, not quite the same. You, you, you can't grasp it. You don't understand. So for us to have had this human nature since we were born, it's hard to imagine anything else, isn't it? How could I never be tempted with sin again? Lust, vanity, greed, jealousy, envy, selfishness. That's what I am. That's what I was born as. Deceitful and desperately wicked. That's me. And I... It's hard to imagine not being that way. God does not want to sin. He has no desire to sin. There's no temptation to sin. He lives the way He lives. And He has rules whereby if you follow them carefully, you'll be happy. But we don't buy that. We think we'd be happy if we could go do that. No, it won't make you happy. You've got a whole world that's out there trying to do that and get happy doing it. How happy is the world around you? They're all out there trying to be happy. That's their goal. I want to be happy. I want to be doing what I want to do, when I want to do it, with whom I want to do it, whenever I want to do it. And I want it to make me happy and full of life and joy. Let's have a party. But they're not very happy. They're not happy with their work. They're not happy with their mate. They're not happy with their brats. They're not happy with their health. They're not happy with the amount of money they got. 
Even if they got a billion, they're not happy with it. The things that are done on this earth don't make happy. I'm sorry. Even though we think it would. Oh, people buy that lottery ticket. I'm going to be happy. $340 million, All my own. I am going to be happy. And they either commit suicide or their relatives and friends take it all or they find out that it didn't make them happy anyway. They still them. You can't run from what you are. You can go from here to Timbuktu and be just as miserable there as you are here because you didn't just pack your bag, you packed yourself along. And that isn't happy. Happiness and joy come from the Holy Spirit of God. And if you don't have that and you don't understand your purpose, you can't be truly happy. And even the angels have trouble understanding what we're here for. Verse 13, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Christ Emmanuel. So he says, pull your brain together. Gird it up. Pull your thoughts together. If you gird up your loins, what do you do? You pull your undies up and you pull your pants up and you put a belt on and you have everything in place. That's just imagery. What are the the loins of your mind? Well, a lot of people's minds are in their loins, all right. That's for sure. But... What he's saying is gather your head up, get it straight, make it right. Do what you ought to do. Think the way you ought to think. So like you would gird your body with clothes, do the same with your mind and be sober. Serious minded. Oh yeah, it's fun to party, it's fun to relax and and have a good time as long as it's a legal type thing. But overall, be sober. Be serious. And have this lively hope for the pardon that's being given that will allow you (coughs) to be resurrected. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. Everybody out there is just ignorantly following whatever they want to do. Whatever type of pleasure they can have. And it varies from person to person. Some people only have one or two or three things that they really would like to do that are wrong. And others want to do everything that's wrong. Uh, People are different uh, by nature. But obedient children... You mean you have to obey? No, 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 no. We got grace only, right? No. He says obedience is a part of it. Your obedience shows what you believe in and why you're going there. Paul said, I'll show you my faith by my works. John, we just went through. He wrote a whole... Three books there about love. So his whole subject is love. And the whole 
perspective was that love is the keeping of the commandments. <coughs> this is the love of God that you keep the commandments. You cannot have God's love apart from the commandments. So Peter believed the same thing. He says, don't follow your lusts, follow the law. You're not ignorant anymore, in other words. You know a different way to live, a better way to live than what you used to be. But as he which has called you is holy, see, so be you holy in all manner of conduct. We're to live like him, do like he did, be holy. Because it is written, be you holy, for I am holy. Leviticus 11 uh, verse, I kind of marked it out there. In the, uh, verse 4, I think it is. Be holy like me. If you're out there living like the world and following your lusts, that's not holiness. It's just not holiness. We have to follow and do as He did. And if you call on the Father, who without respect of persons judges according to every man's work, oh, God judges by our works? Yes, He does. I'll show you my faith by my works, and salvation does not come from works because it's a free gift of God. But God will judge us according to our works. It's part of the judgment, you see. You can have good works and not earn a place in the kingdom of God. You can't do it no matter how good you are and how good your works are. Because you have sinned and come short. And all the good works will not make up for the sin because sin has to be died for. Penalty of sin is death. So you could have good works from now on saying, Oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna be in the kingdom of God because I'm doing all this service and I'm doing all these works. You're just spinning your wheel and wasting your time and effort. If that's what you're looking for. Because it's a gift from God. But, that gift is partially credited in his mind according to works. We see it with our children all the time, or did. We promise them a gift. And then if that child is rebellious and won't do the chores, and won't obey, and won't mind, and is selfish, and constantly wants to go his own way, then we don't feel like giving him the bicycle we promised as a gift if he would do what he's supposed to do. Instead, we want to paddle his behind, or put him on detention, or whatever form of discipline we're using at the moment, because we're unhappy with that child. Why do you want to give him something when he's acting like a spoiled brat? You don't. Children are supposed to be a blessing to us because we discipline them and we don't let them be selfish and we teach them to be loving and kind and gentle and caring and to love their parents and to love their siblings and then everybody's happy, happy. But it's dysfunctional when they're doing their thing and people say, oh, I love my kids. Oh, I love my kids. I'm going to kill myself. <clears throat> you know? 
They're not a blessing. They're almost a curse. You can't say you hate the little brats, but boy, sometimes it comes up in your craw and you think, how am I going to deal with these monsters? Because you're not dealing with them and therefore they're not being dealt with. And you know what? If you don't take care of them and discipline, they're not going to be three-year-old brats. They're going to be 18-year-old brats. Because they're not going to learn it on their own. You have to work salvation in them. On your own, you will not make it into the kingdom of God. I'll guarantee you. God has to work salvation in you. He will put on you whatever trials, troubles, difficulties, temptations. No, He doesn't tempt, but He puts trials, troubles, and difficulties on us. He disciplines us. He chastens every son whom He loves. He doesn't say, oh, it's okay, honey. You can go ahead and pull my hair out if you want. You can kick my shins. It's okay. I love you anyway. No, He's not that way. He wants you to be respectable and respected and control yourself as He does. And He will put whatever pressure on you that is necessary to keep you from being a spoiled brat. He is not going to have a bunch of those in His kingdom. He lives in peace and happiness and He kicked Satan out because he was a brat. And He's let him come back to be a, an accuser of us. But He's going to kick him back out again for good. He's not going to tolerate that forever, just for a short while. And you shouldn't tolerate it in your kids, except for a short while. And you do whatever is necessary to get that spoiled, selfish, bratty attitude changed. So you have to work the salvation of that child because as a human being, that child will have nothing but lust, vanity, greed, jealousy, envy, and selfishness. That's what his life will consist of. That's what is his nature. And that's what Satan works on. So you have to work salvation in him so he doesn't save him from being a spoiled brat. That's what you've got to do. Just as God has to save us from being a spoiled, selfish human being. Same thing. So he says, God wants to give you his salvation. He wants you to have this lively hope. But you know what? Your hope increases uh, exponentially as your obedience increases. You know, my hope to be in the kingdom of God is tempered or discouraged by sin. Because sin separates us from God. And when I have to face God with something I've thought or done, my hope of salvation at that moment is not near as lively as it is if I can face Him and say, I've been obedient. I've done what I should do. Please bless me. Now, if I've sinned, then I come and I'm thinking, oh, please don't punish me too hard. Please be merciful. Please be kind to me. And salvation isn't near as real in a repentance situation as it is when I've obeyed. So he says, be holy as I am holy. 
so that you can have a lively hope, not a hope against hope. And if you call on the Father, who without respect of persons judges according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. We should be living in fear of God. Not from the standpoint that He wants to squash us like a bug, but a healthy respect that if we do the things we're supposed to, we will be saved instead of destroyed. So we have, that's the beginning of wisdom, is beginning to fear God. Because these people out here around us don't really fear God, and so they do anything they want to do. Now, if we begin to fear God, we read His laws, we say, I ought to do this, and I have a fear that if I don't do what I'm supposed to do, I'll go into the lake of fire. Not that He wants me to, and not that I want to, but that's the way I am. Why will you die, O Israel? You don't have to. I don't want you to. So why do you keep going your way? Go my way and do well and live in fear of God. Fear of, fear of not the punishment that will come so much is fear of missing out on what you could have had. That scares me more than the lake of fire does. The lake of fire, <clears throat> though it's a terrible thought, comes and you're burned and you're gone. It's over. Done. So I live in fear of missing out on eternal life in total happiness and joy with no fear, no sorrow, no pain, no death, no tears. I fear missing that is what keeps me going. I don't want to miss out. So I fear before God and I try to obey Him so that I can have a lively hope of that. And that's what Peter is directing us to. No matter what's going on in your life, no matter how hard it is, keep your eye focused in a lively hope of the resurrection. Well, let's stop right there. Good thought to end on.